Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may have a position in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation or the content of this podcast. Do your own research. I'm Carl West, and I've been a business journalist for almost 25 years, including stints at the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail. Small and medium-sized companies are the lifeblood of the UK economy. They make up almost 91% of companies listed on the London Stock Exchange and collectively have a market value of almost 400 billion. Employing more than 2 million people each year, they contribute 20 billion in taxes. They do so much for the country. But when do we ever hear from the men and women who are the driving force behind these success stories? The All Points West podcast will shine a spotlight on them to learn what motivates them and how that shapes their business. We explore how they got to where they are and gain some insight into their companies. It's a chance for them to share fresh perspectives on a wide range of topics, such as the economy, the markets in which they operate, and the opportunities and challenges they face. So, if you've ever wondered who are the entrepreneurs, creatives, and decision makers behind the company facade, the All Points West podcast is the place for you. So welcome, Stefan Bernstein, to the All Points West podcast. Stefan is Chief Executive of AIM-listed Green Rock Mining. Stefan, you're a Danish geologist with more than 30 years of experience in Greenland's mining sector, spanning both corporate and governmental advisory roles. Prior to Green Rock, which you joined as CEO in June 2022, you were the Head of Mapping and Mineral Resources Department at GIAS which is the Danish and Greenlandic Geological Survey. And uh, you were responsible there for supporting the sustainable exploitation of raw materials in Greenland. So you've got a strong knowledge and understanding of the country and its mineral wealth. So it kind of makes you an ideal candidate for Green Rock, for a mining company in Greenland. Stefan, talk me through your career briefly. So before you took over at Green Rock, because you, you've had a, a pretty varied career so far, clearly, you know, working both corporate side and governmental. Yes, 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 that's right. I mean, all of my career, really, since I was a young student in geology, I've been switching back and forth between research and economic geology. Mm-hmm. And that's been very, very satisfying for me. I think it's great because you kind of combine uh, several skill sets that, that actually become quite fruitful when you are dealing with both of the, of the two branches, you could, you could say, of geology. And, and certainly you can add to this the, the, the business of the exploration and, and, and mining. And the reason I see that as, as fruitful is, I suppose, is that, you know, in, in research, you, you need to understand details of how nature works. So you, you become, I would almost say, humble <laughs> towards what nature has in the back for us. You, you, never, you never really know until there's always more insight to be gained as you collect new data. So, so that's very useful to keep that in mind, that the story is always more complex than you think. And yet you have, of course, to cut it simple in a way to comprehend what it is that you're dealing with. And then, in turn, the exploration stage and, and, and the mining is much more concrete. You have to have some tangible results, really, to, to show for. You can't just go out with a story that sounds good 
<laughs> and actually in a way that well you, you can't prove you wrong therefore you must be right well that doesn't really work in mineral exploration and business because you have a drill and the drill bit will tell you whether you are right or wrong so that i think is is very very useful to keep in mind also that your models that you build up and your well exploration models for instance that that ultimately they will be tested and and i think that's a great thing that sort yeah. of holds you to the cool facts yeah so i think that's been great to be switching back and forth yeah sure where did you go to university and when and what was that like so I really had a and took an interest in geology. I suppose it was my parents really because back in when they were at high school, they actually had a they actually had lectures in geology, or two right. classes in geology, which is not a commonplace these these days. Hmm. So so when we went on vacations, it was like the landscape opened itself to me in a different way than that. That it's like a different facet really to. To, to nature that opens to geologists, which I, I found really, really exciting. And then then I started studying geology. And I was just very, very lucky because I ran into some very, very good people. I, I, I'm greatly in debt to, to my professor, then professor at the University of Copenhagen, mm-hmm. Kent Brooks, a British geologist. We've been working with Greenland geology for, for, for decades when he at some point announced that he needed two geology students to help him out in Greenland. And it would be great if they had a bit of mountaineering background, which I happen to have. Yeah. So I ended up going to East Greenland in 1987, which was really a defining moment for me because not only was I introduced to Greenland geology by Kent Brooks, but I also met some really great scientists there that were also engaged in mineral exploration. Peter Kellerman, now professor at Columbia University in, in New York, and Emeritus Professor Dennis Bird from Stanford University, and then, of course, Professor Minik Rosing from University of Copenhagen. And uh, they, they just like opened a whole new world for me. So I was really engaged in geology from then on, and particularly Greenland geology, simply because Greenland is a fantastically well-exposed country to geology because of the, the glacial terrain, and also because Greenland has an incredibly diverse geology spanning, well, most of Earth's history, really, nearly 4 billion years. So one last person I ran into in East Greenland was Bob Gannicott, who was a CEO of a small Canadian private exploration company who was behind the discovery of the Diavik diamond mine in Canada and later became the director of the Harry Winston and Dominion Diamonds in in Canada. And uh, he kind of introduced me to the business of mineral exploration, which is quite different from the actual like conducting mineral exploration and, and, and the research I was just referring to. So I have had the luck of running into some very charismatic people that have been extremely helpful for me and also just like opening my eyes to these various sides of life, I suppose. Yeah. Just want to take you back. You mentioned your parents there earlier. Uh, What did they do? Um, So um, mother, uh, uh, she has a background in, um, uh, (laughs) what do you call that, when you are uh, designing uh, clothes and um, sewing and uh, and making uh, costumes. Yeah. Fashion, fashion designer. 
Yeah, yeah. She took an education in that. She never practiced it, but that was her right. background. And then my dad was a dentist. So so uh, nothing in, in earth science. Yeah. But they both encouraged your interest in geology. Well, we just, yes, certainly they were both having an interest in natural sciences and mm -hmm. natural history. And when we went on vacation, we often took to the mountains, either in Norway or in the Alps. And uh, I just really enjoyed that. Yeah. You went to Copenhagen University. Was that where you grew up? Well, I grew up in the southern part of Sealand, okay. about 80 kilometers south of, of Copenhagen in a small provincial town. Yeah, where I spent the first 18 years of my life before I moved to, to Copenhagen when I started studying geology. Yeah. What was that like? Do you have siblings? Yes. Yes. I have four sisters. Four sisters, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> are you older, younger, or whereabouts are you? I was right in the middle. I'm right okay. in the middle. Okay. And and now, okay, my, my, my parents passed away not long ago, but by, I'm, I'm lucky I still have all my sisters. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's great to have this big family, a great kind of background for a stable platform you could speak for, for life. What, what were you like at school? Were you, were you interested in geology at school or was it, was it just general interest in science? Well, we, we weren't really... Um, we didn't have any uh, lectures or classes or anything in geology. Uh, it was more like geography and human geography. And uh, there was very little of that in uh, in school and high school when I grew up. Most of it was, as I said, through my, my parents' uh, influence and then um, reading books, I suppose, about actually some quite interesting books about some explorers in mineral exploration working in Canada. That really... <clears throat> that really ended up being something that I, I thought that that was certain by that should be my destiny to be a, like a, an explorer. Yeah. Um, and I guess in a funny way, you've kind of achieved that ambition. I mean, throughout your career, that's kind of what you've done with being in Greenland all that time. That's right. That's right. I, I often think how, how lucky I've been because I, I basically was able to identify early on what it was that I was excited about. And I'm just watching the young people today, you know, with the so many choices. And it's really difficult. If you don't know exactly where your interests and talents are, then then it's 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 it must be a big uh, source of worry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Green Rock, just in case our listeners are not familiar, has got three main projects in Greenland. But the main one is the Amitsok graphite project in southern Greenland, which has one of the highest grade graphite deposits globally. I think I'm right in saying. So, um, Stefan, what makes it so special or unique? Yes. So the Amitsok deposit is unique in several ways. First of all, I should say that it is really a mine already. It was a mine rather, opened in 1914 and closed again in 1922 after the First World War stopped and graphite prices worldwide. Uh, but I guess that actually alludes to one of the special aspects of Amitsok that makes it so attractive, namely that it is of a very high quality. The, the ore itself is, as you also mentioned, very high grade. So the average is around uh, 20%, but parts of the ore bodies are up to 23, 24% graphite. 
And back in the old days, people realized, of course, what good graphite looked like. So that was one of the reasons why they set up production in South Greenland 100 years ago. Uh, not only is it great, really good, but the quality of the graphite, the flake sizes and uh, the cleanness of the graphite is very high. So that's about the quality of the graphite. The other thing that makes it special is that it's it's in Greenland. Greenland is in the Arctic region in the North Atlantic. But being in South Greenland, it really is a quite mild climate. In Greenland, they refer to this part of the country as the banana coast. That's not because they grow a lot of bananas there, but it just to say something about the relatively mild climate that so, prevails. That also means that the the fjords are generally ice-free in the winter. And this deposit being situated right at the coast means that it makes up for easy shipping to and from the deposit. Sure. There's been a lot of hype about how this is potentially a huge opportunity for Green Rock because of the use of graphite in electric vehicle batteries. I mean... Obviously, that's a part of the market that's growing exponentially, but the electric battery market generally is a pretty fast-growing market. But we tend to hear more about demand for EV batteries, for electric vehicles. And that's a market that obviously, as I say, is roaring ahead, and it looks like it's only going to keep accelerating as we switch from internal combustion engines to electric-powered vehicles. How confident are you that you can get enough graphite out of the ground and that it will be the right specification to satisfy EV manufacturers. Have you had any preliminary conversations with manufacturers or even governments? Because obviously places like China are very involved in mm. this kind of stuff. That's exactly right. So today, all graphite that goes into EV batteries is, well, a lot of it is actually mined in China. And all of it is processed in China because you can't just take the graphite from the ground and use it in batteries. It has to be shaped into what's called spherical graphite and then has to be purified so it's ultra clean and then coated before you can make the anodes. That process is presently only undertaken in China. We have done some test work on the graphite. So we have taken out some, some samples, of course, and we have a lab in Germany conducting some tests and showing that we can easily achieve a 96% graphite concentrate by standard flotation methods. And then we have taken that concentrate and done some test work in terms of producing spherical graphite. And we have arrived at some very, very good results, very good material that fulfills all the requirements from the anode producers. So at least at lab scale, we can, we can conduct this work. We would like, of course, to set up a proper domestic production of spherical graphite for the anode industry or EV battery industry. So that requires that we also have a way to process the material with, if possible, processing units manufactured by uh, European companies. So that's presently something that we are talking to some companies, mainly some German companies that are developing spherinization equipment. So are you hoping to set that up within Greenland or within Europe? Yeah, so what we will do is we'll set up the early stage processing plant in Greenland. So we'll have a graphite concentrate that we can export from Greenland. That will then be shipped to a place where we have a processing plant set up. And the reason for not having that spherinized processing plant in Greenland is that it is a very energy-intensive process and also it involves some purification agents, like a quite 
corrosive chemicals that we probably would like to have a place where there's already the established guidelines for how to to have such industries operating. So that would mean probably Northern Europe could also be North America, like the U.S., Mm -hmm. Yeah, just just for the benefit of our listeners, graphite is extremely resistant to heat and nearly inert in contact with almost any other material, which I guess makes it ideal for use in battery and any kind of energy intensive operation. But obviously, you're the expert. There are other reasons why it's so sought after for, for this kind of use. Well, yeah, as you just said, there's a lot of different, more like traditional uses of graphite in the steel industry, also for foundries and brake pads and many other applications. It's also extremely good for reflecting heat and various energy sources. So it's becoming more and more widely used as an addition to insulations. And the reason it's so Useful in battery industries is a super high conductor. Conductivities are even higher than those of silver. So that means that once you're in a battery where the lithium ions move around, the graphite anode make it possible to take up the electrons and let go again once the once the battery is charged. So there's a lot of exciting uses for graphite in the years to come. And also, I should just mention, one of the really exciting things about graphite is also with batteries is that it's very, very strong. The individual graphene layers are a thousand times stronger than steel or so. So it's it's also a great product for other special applications. Uh Just take you back again. So car manufacturers or battery manufacturers for electric vehicles, are they getting in contact with you directly? Are you dealing with any of them at this stage? Or is that something that you anticipate will come later? So we're talking to the traditional off-takers of graphite for traditional users. Right. And then we've talked to like car manufacturers and battery manufacturers, anode producers, all kind of branches of the industry that is engaged in EV battery production. And worldwide, really. I mean, we're speaking to companies in North America, companies in India, companies in Europe. Yeah, I would say that common for all of the contacts that we have had is that there's definitely interest. I mean, they quickly see that our deposit stands out. But at the same time, you can also tell that a lot of companies are really, really concerned about lithium at the moment. So lithium really takes the scene, particularly because the prices of lithium have gone up nearly 10 times or so over the, just the past two or three years. So, of course, yeah. that's something that really worries them, how they're going to make the supply chains more stable and also what prices can they expect for the lithium supplies. For graphite yeah. at the moment, we haven't really seen those price hikes, but the forecasts are <clears throat> showing that graphite will become in deficit over the, the coming years and severely so from 2027. Hmm. So we can't expect the kind of like moderate prices that we see today for graphite to persist for very long. Yeah. When you say they're concerned about lithium, presumably you mean concerned about the supply, the ability to get their hands on it, essentially, because obviously it's in difficult places to mine and not too many of them, really. Yes. Well, for lithium, it's just that the world weren't really ready to ramp up production or even develop projects with the speed that lithium was coming into demand because the market for lithium before production of EV batteries really started to take off a few years ago was really, really small. 
Whereas for graphite, there was already a, a fairly healthy production worldwide. So many of the existing mines could at least cover a good deal of the growing demand. But that's, of course, going to change because there's a yearly growth rate now that certainly outpaces what the existing mines can deliver. And in fact, Benchmark Mineral Intelligence has forecasted that the demand by 2030 for across a series of raw materials is so that we would see in the order of 50 to 100 new mines, new mines of average size for graphite. It's about 50,000 tons of production per year of graphite concentrate between 50 to 100 new mines in operation by 2035 just to keep up with the demand. In fact, it's right. like nearly 100 graphite mines. Right. Okay. And presumably you think that what we've witnessed with the lithium price will be replicated with graphite. Well, yes, maybe not to the full extent that we have seen with lithium. We can also see now that lithium prices actually have been going down a bit over the past half year. So, And that's, of course, reflecting that now more mines are coming on stream. And the same is partly true for graphite. So, I mean, there will be new mines. We have had a little bit of warning, so to speak. So prices will go up. I don't know whether they will actually be up to like 10 times the prices we see today. That's probably less likely, but we're definitely going to see a very strong price regime in the in the years to come, according yeah. to the people that know about these things, such as Benchmark Mineral Intelligence and Fast Market and, and other analysts. So what's next for Amit, Amitsok? Right. So in brief, we are set to be in production by 2027. So currently, we are undertaking all of the requirement that leads up to an exploitation permit, and that involves, obviously, environmental impact assessment and, and also some social impact assessment work. That's presently ongoing. We actually started already last year. And right now, we are conducting a preliminary economic assessment, which will be out in September uh, this fall. And that would be the first time that we take the resource and do a proper calculation of what it's actually going to take to put this into production. What will be the capital investments and uh, the, the number of people involved in production and so forth, so that we have some robust numbers to go out to the capital market and, and start doing some more serious raises in terms of getting into construction. And, and of course, we'll also the line need a feasibility study, which is basically the same as the preliminary economic assessment, it just has smaller robots, so to speak, mm -hmm. so that we can get into production by 27. Well, Stefan, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for making the time today and good luck with everything yeah. at Green Rock. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me. No problem.